Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-suite podcast. This is a special episode. I am really excited to let you know that my book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now available as an audiobook. And this is in celebration of the first year anniversary of the book. In this episode of the podcast, I wanted to give you some behind the scenes info on the making of an audiobook. And also give you a sample of a chapter so you can listen to part of the finished product. So I mentioned a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff of podcasting and audio recording in an earlier episode, but I wanted to dive a little bit deeper about the process today in this episode and what a process it is. So Values First was released in 2022, just last year, in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle version. And at its release, I started getting asked, is there an audiobook? I really did not realize how popular audiobooks were. I mean, I listen to them sometimes as well. I also love to hold a physical book in my hand too. I kind of go back and forth. But at the time of its release, I wasn't ready to record it yet. And my publisher suggested getting a professional narrator to do it. But that didn't really seem right to me because if you've read the book and you listen to this podcast, then you know that it's filled with stories about my career. So it seemed weird to me to have someone else narrate that because it's my experience and I wanted to to read it if I and when I did an audiobook. So I thought, how hard could that really be? I mean, I have a podcast. I'm used to recording my own content. I can totally do an audiobook when I'm ready. And, you know, throughout this year, this book, I mean, I've gotten to spend a lot of time with this book, you know, been in front of lots of people. I've been on lots of different podcasts and it's gotten multiple awards. I'm really proud of all that stuff. It's a 2023 Axiom business book, Silver award medalist in the work-life balance and time management category. It's a finalist in the Page Turner Awards, an NYC Big Book Award, Distinguished Favorite, and a Reader Views Bronze Reviewer's Choice Award, a Books Excellence Award winner. And I'm I'm all I'm just so proud of all of those things. And like I said, I've kind of promoted it in lots of different places. And it's been an amazing year of teaching leaders about the values first framework and getting feedback from them on how it has impacted your lives, your lives. So readers have told me about their personal stories of clarifying their values and using those to make small and huge life decisions. 
like deciding to leave their job or to start a new business or to negotiate more money in a job interview and being successful in that because they built out their own non-negotiables and boundaries in their job search. Those are the things that I am most proud of. But throughout this year, I have been, I I thought, pretty close to the content in this book. I've been talking about it a lot. But, you know, when it was really time to celebrate this book, I decided let's create the audiobook. This is time, right? So I thought it would be relatively straightforward because I'd been talking about the book and the book's content for so long by this point. I mean, it's a book about my content and my career and my life. So I thought, how hard could this be? Well, harder than than you'd think it would be is what I would tell you. So I chose to work with a studio and a producer that was recommended to me. And I cannot say enough about them. They're so great to work with. And so as I as I kind of planned the audiobook recording, we scheduled studio time in their studio, which is about 30 minutes from my house. And the way that it's done, it's done over multiple days. And the book isn't super long, so I didn't think that it would take that long to record. However, they mentioned as a narrator, your voice can get tired or you can even lose your voice if you do too much recording over a span of time that's too close together. So we recorded over several days in four hour chunks and they told me, you know, very specific things. So in this journey, I just didn't realize what I was getting myself into, I guess. And, you know, everything from, Hey, what to wear to what to not eat or drink before. So in the studio, you want to be really comfortable. So, you know, I rolled up in a t-shirt with my joggers on and sneakers packed a sweatshirt just in case I got cold. And really, you don't want to make too much noise. So if you shift around and those kinds of things, so like took off jewelry, like those kinds of things, so it wouldn't make noise um, in the studio. They also told me to avoid like carbonated beverages or acidic foods as well, which was interesting. And also hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So I refilled my water often. So I had my water bottle with me and I started off my day with tea each recording day. And the way that they had it set up, I was in a room with a producer who was listening to everything that I was recording and they had set up an iPad with the book script on it so that I could use that to read from. Again, you can't read from an actual book because turning the pages makes too much noise. So as I started reading... Eric, the producer, he would direct me. And when I first started, he gave me feedback to bring up my energy and my tone. And he was also reading along the script at the same time. And he told me like when I missed words and he would cut production and say, okay, hey, let's re-record this one sentence. You missed this word. Or hey, you switched these two words around. And woo, I did that often. So it actually took a lot longer than I thought to record. And now I know that the next book I write, I am going to read it out loud as part of my editing process because you catch so many things in just the act of reading it out loud. And I wished I would have done that before the final printing of the book's original release because, oh my goodness, another surprise. I found a few typos and it is driving me bananas. Like, do you know how many people have read that book for editing, for copywriting and literally to proofread it? So many people. 
in the publishing process. There's so many people that have read it. I have read it multiple times. I've had other people read it. There's an actual copy editor who does it. There's a proofreader that that's their job, a QA person who does it. And I still found a couple of typos. And so I apologize for those of you, if you found them, I know where they are now, but I know that now I want to use that act of kind of reading it out loud as a part of my editing process, because some of them, it wasn't a typo, but it just sounded funny when I wasn't just reading it in my head when I was reading it out loud. And so now I have even much more respect for that whole process and for authors and proofreaders and all of the things. But within the recording on the first day, it was just going very slow. I looked up and it had been two hours of recording and I was only on page like 30 something. And I was like, oh no, oh my goodness. Did we book enough days in the studio? Am I ever going to get through this? But then after a while, I got the hang of it and the producer and I got into a rhythm and it started getting through the content a little bit faster. But there were multiple times that I had to re-record a sentence or two and then I would mess them up at the same point every single time. And it was really like a bloopers reel and it was super nerve wracking. So you know that feeling when you repeat a word or you read something over and over and it kind of starts to lose its meaning, like the word just doesn't feel like a word anymore. It just kind of runs together. I am such a geek. I actually looked up to see if there's a name for that. And there is. It's called semantic satiation. So semantic satiation is a psychological phenomenon in which repetition causes a word or a phrase to temporarily lose meaning for the listener who then perceives the speech as repeated, meaningless sounds. And just so that you know, as we're recording this podcast, I probably had to edit um, that because I just got hung up on on the word semantic satiation. Anyway, (laughs) so during the recording of the audiobook, I totally experienced that. And thank goodness for the magic of editing, because otherwise I would have never gotten through some of those. So after multiple days in the recording studio over a span of a week, I didn't record on consecutive days on purpose so I could rest my voice, but I finished the first reading of the book and then they did a round of editing and then we listened to it. So the producer suggested that I listen to it while having the book in front of me. And so I was a big geek and I... I listened to it on purpose, like with my earbuds, not just on a speaker in my office, because I wanted it to be as real as if, you know, a reader was listening to it on their earbuds. But I did that and I kept kind of a list in Excel about the notes on each chapter that I wanted to re-record or redo. And then we had scheduled another day in the studio to re-record those small sections. And after that, we did another listen through the producer and me separately. And then I had another reviewer listen to it too. And then we finally finalized it. So it is a process. It is. It was a really interesting process. And I, you know, I hadn't read the book cover to cover for over a year at the time of the recording of the audiobook. And what surprised me most was that, you know, I I kind of fell in love with it all over again. I'm I'm just so proud of this book and this work. And I left each day knowing that the content in the book was just so important to get it out in the world. 
And there's a line in the book's introduction that rings so very true. It says, I hope this book helps you understand a perspective that's different than your own. This is my perspective. And let me tell you, as an introvert, it is both freeing to get this down on paper and also extremely terrifying that it is now out in the world. And I will say that that, um, that passage still holds. Now, as the audiobook is now out in the world, it is still both freeing, but also terrifying to get it out in the world. Even though it's already been out in the world for a year now, this is different somehow because it's me reading it with my own voice in your ear, kind of like you're listening to it now. So if you like this podcast, then I think you will love the audiobook. Next, I am going to give you a sneak peek at one of my most favorite chapters within the Values First framework in my book. So remember the acronym of values, V-A-L-U-E-S. I'll stand for a different part of the framework. And the chapter that I'm sharing with you is from the E in the Values First framework, which stands for Experiencing Conflict. And this is a chapter from that section called Standing Up for Your Values. When I wrote the words that you'll hear, I wasn't sure if they'd actually make it into the published book. When I wrote them, you know, I was writing them as one of my many drafts of the book, and I needed to get them out of my head and onto paper, not knowing if I'd actually keep it in because there are some very personal stories, personal career stories in here. You'll hear a story from my early career and some when I was in my later career in corporate. And these are just a few of the stories that I share of a kind of theme of things that women hear at work and the things that women experience at work. And some of it's hard. It's hard to listen to some of some of this stuff. I mean, you know, there's much worse that has happened, but this is to other people, right? And I and I don't want to diminish my own experience. But I do want to share my experience because this kind of stuff happens all the time. And, you know, just to ensure confidentiality, the names of the people and the organizations have been changed, all that, all that stuff. I've also recreated the dialogue to the best of my recollection. But the best of my recollection is pretty darn good because some of these stories are seared into my memory and my body. Like I just remember how some of this stuff felt. So even as I was reading these passages in the recording studio, it brought me right back to those experiences. So this is one of my favorite chapters. That's kind of like saying you have a favorite kid. I do love all of them equally, really. And I really hope you learn a bit about how to deal with conflict, how to stand up for your values, and how learning is never finished. Values First, the audiobook, is now available on Audible and iTunes. Let's get started with the chapter from the newly released audiobook, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want. Narrated by me. Experiencing Conflict Standing Up for Your Values There will be times when you aren't living your values, when your priorities will be out of alignment. It will happen, but in the Experiencing Conflict section of the Values First Framework, 
I'm giving you the tools and resources to deal with conflicts and boundary breaches when you're in situations misaligned with your values. Living your values every day will give you a way to create boundaries, draw lines in the sand, and set priorities. Along with those priorities will come difficult decisions and hard conversations. Sometimes people may not be open to your decisions, or it will be hard for them to understand your decisions. You will find yourself in situations where you need to stand up for yourself or others based on the values that you hold. During a business trip early in my career, I was traveling with two colleagues, Rachel and Bob. Rachel had a no-nonsense attitude with a sharp wit. Bob was a quintessential small-town family man with salt-and-pepper hair who spoke with a Midwestern accent. Rachel was at a similar age and stage in her career as I was, while Bob was at a later stage in his professional life and had recently transitioned careers. He was relatively new in our industry, and we were all peers. We were on site to do some work at one of our clients' offices. My colleagues and I had flown in the night before, and the clients also flew in from their home office for the meetings. We were scheduled to meet in the hotel for breakfast to go over logistics and plan out our work for the week. This was the first time we would meet this client in person. We arrived early and looked around the open seating for a table big enough to accommodate us. A family had come into the breakfast area at the same time, also looking to find a seat, getting ready for their day and what I presumed was a family vacation. Our clients were two men in their mid-careers, dressed in the prerequisite khaki pants and button-down shirts that screamed business casual, with belts matching their shoes. We introduced ourselves to the clients and sat down. At the table, I sat in between my two colleagues facing our clients on the other side of the table. Just beyond them was my view of the coffee station and the spread of complimentary hotel breakfast, including the usual suspects of oatmeal, cereal, bagels, and, if you wanted to wait the five minutes for it to cook, the crown jewel of the breakfast array, the waffle station. Breakfast was included in our rate at the hotel. We had a per diem rate for travel and expenses, a capped rate of what was reimbursable per day for food on a business trip. If you went over your limit, you wouldn't get reimbursed. So having breakfast included in our hotel rate meant that we could have a nicer dinner with my colleagues later, and maybe even a glass of wine. Another strategy is to not spend your per diem at all and get that money back. Always a fun game to play on long business trips when you are early in your career. We started with introductions and a little small talk about our flights and our night's sleep at this chain hotel. We sipped our coffee and nibbled on our breakfasts at our two-crammed table of drinks and half-eaten bagels with our notebooks propped on our laps, ready to take notes about the logistics of our meetings for the week. We were about to get into the details, you know, the moment where you switch from small talk to the actual agenda and important topics, when Bob said to her clients, well, you can see how pretty these girls are. Now they can show you how smart they are. Awkward silence ensued. I was livid. My body temperature rose at least five degrees. My eyes darted to Bob, then to Rachel, then back to Bob, then to the clients, then down. What the actual hell did he just say? I had zero words in that moment. I felt small, but had a rage building inside. 
pretty first, then prove your worth. It felt like the patriarchy was speaking through him directly into my soul in that moment. In the past, these moments had felt sneakier, like whispers you question hearing, unsure if someone had spoken. This was direct, by a colleague that I had trusted. In that moment, the dynamic changed from the three of us with two clients to three older men at the table looking at two younger women. Rachel's extroverted directness saved us with a curt response of, funny, but let's get down to the details of the meeting. She was direct enough to let him know that indeed it was not funny and that she wasn't having it, and it moved the conversation along. The clients looked awkwardly at us, with faces I couldn't read. Amusement? Surprise? Professional horror? Rachel transitioned the meeting and took control of what we were going to be doing on site. And 15 minutes later, we were off to our car to make our way over to the building. On this trip, we had one rental car for the three of us for multiple days. As we got into the car, we closed our car doors calmly. Bob was in the driver's seat because, you know, the man has to drive, of course. Bob, what the hell, said Rachel. What the hell was that? You called us girls and then talked about how we were pretty and had to prove that we were smart? To a client? You can't do that. It is so disrespectful, is what I remember saying, infuriated. I know I had so many other words that I wanted to say and may have, but anger had since blocked them out. What? I'm so sorry. I think of you two like my girls, my daughters, and it was a bad joke. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it like that. It will be fine. They didn't think anything of it. But it wasn't fine. Not for us. The ride to the client's building was short, so we didn't have a lot of time to deep dive on how wrong this was and what it meant. Bob would later get to have multiple conversations with us over the next several days on why this was problematic behavior. With one rental car, we were all stuck together to go for dinners and traveling back and forth from the client site for multiple days. I don't remember going to HR with the incident. Since it happened so early in the trip, we more or less wrote Bob off by the end of it and kept it professional, but nothing more. The client hadn't brought it up, so we returned home and tried to put it behind us. Back in the office, I avoided casual conversations with Bob unrelated to project work. At one point, over a year later, Bob and I got back on track as colleagues, and I agreed to give him feedback on an external project. At this point, the company was going through layoffs. My time came, and I was laid off in the third round of a reduction in force after they lost funding for my position. It happened very quickly. My manager came in and gave me the news. I asked when my last day would be, thinking it would be at the end of the week. That day was my last day. Even though I had already started looking for other jobs and knew this day would eventually come, my vision was that I would leave for a new job before I was let go. It didn't happen that way. This was an abrupt ending. It was just like the stereotypical office sitcom, where you see a person packing up a box of their stuff when they've been let go. There I was, trying to awkwardly pack my things and doing it as quickly as possible. All the while, my remaining coworkers passed my office trying to see what had happened. As I was packing up, Bob walked by and asked, So will you still help me with my project? I stopped what I was doing. Really? Did he just say that? Another female colleague, Stacy, stepped in saying, Bob, she just lost her job. Leave her alone. 
Stacy and I weren't super close, but she knew what was happening. And in that moment, she stood up for me. She was the voice that I didn't have. And no, I did not help Bob with his project. On another business trip, many moons later, in my mid-career, I was in a city that had been on my bucket list to visit for vacation. Even though I was in this tropical location for work, it was still amazing to be there. I was in town to meet with my clients, all male, to work through strategy and goal setting for a new project. On the first night, we had a dinner reservation at sunset at a high-end restaurant with a stunning view of the water. We had cocktails outside on the patio before dinner. Then we moved inside and were seated at a round table set for six. One of my clients said, Laura, you should take this seat so you can see the sunset view over the bay. I gladly accepted his offer. As I took my seat, the waiter was handing me a menu and another client who was seated directly across from me said, I like this view better. I looked up at him and then casually looked behind me to see the view he had. The only thing behind me was the empty foyer of the restaurant. The view he liked so much was of me. I felt the familiar heat. You know, the heat that you feel as it rises from your gut to your head. I looked down to carefully study what drink I would be having next, so that I could avoid eye contact at all costs. I'm one of those people who do not have the right words to say in the moment. I need time to process. I may replay it over again in my head. When I say may, I mean I do. I play it back over and over in my head many times. Did I hear him right? Did I miss something? Was he talking about something else? Are there flowers behind me? No. The only thing behind me is a door that no one can see through. In that instance, I moved on. I said nothing. If I could go back, I'd say something like, What? You like looking at? Insert name of one of the other men we were eating dinner with. Or something else that could be seen as humorous, but also snarky enough to let him know that, no dude, that wasn't cool. Instead, during dinner, I told stories about my amazing husband and beautiful children to make it quite clear that the only view I liked was of the sea and my family. Several years later, I was in another conference room in another city in another meeting. This time, I was one of many women in the room, some clients, some colleagues, and some consultants at various levels in the organization. The conference room overlooked another ocean on another coast. Of course, I was going to take advantage of the view because I'd be stuck in this conference room for two days, so I staked out a spot where I could take in the panoramic scene. The seats started filling up in our small group meeting, with maybe eight other people in the room besides me. One of our consultants, a man who I knew well and was more senior than me, put his bag down directly across from me. He looked directly at me with a smirk and said, I like my view better than yours. Time slowed down. I felt the familiar heat in my body. I shifted in my seat. I looked up at him with a not-so-happy face. I don't think it was my full-on WTF or go-to-hell face, but it wasn't a happy one. 
Other people were still getting settled in, and I wondered if I was the only one who heard him. I was supposed to lead this meeting in just a few minutes. Instead, now I was thinking about this comment instead of my actual job of facilitating a strategy session. I looked down at what I was wearing. I had on a black blouse, black jacket, and cream flowy pants. It was not tight. I was not showing too much skin. It was freezing in the conference room, so I knew to dress for the occasion. That is what I was thinking about. I was questioning my attire, like women are taught to do. I was thinking about how I was going to have to have a conversation with this dude who should totally know better than to say something like that to me. This was what I was thinking about, not thinking about my literal job. But here's the thing. I'd grown up, gained perspective, and gained experience, which meant as soon as I heard the comment, I immediately knew that I was going to talk to him about it. The statement had crossed a boundary. I knew with certainty that I was willing to have that conversation because I needed to advocate for myself and to ensure that he knew it was not okay to say to me or any other person in the future. During a break a few hours later, the consultant asked, Can I talk to you for a minute? Of course, I said. We left the room to chat in the hall. Did my comment come off as creepy, he asked. Thank you for initiating this conversation and to ask how it came across. Yes, yes, it did. I agreed. Okay, he said. I thought so. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. I say that kind of thing to my daughter and my wife. I was thinking, well, am I your daughter or your wife? No, no, I am not. I am someone else's daughter. I am someone else's wife. I said, well, thank you for having an open conversation about it. That exact comment has been made to me before. It doesn't feel good. I'm glad that we can have an open conversation about how it wasn't appropriate. He said, that wasn't my intent. Okay, I said, thank you for the apology. I wanted the awkwardness to end, so we ended the conversation and went back inside the meeting room. Hard conversations are awkward. They feel risky to have. In conversations like these, I feel like I need to say the right thing and say it in the right way. In this instance, it was helpful that the consultant had the self-awareness to initiate the conversation. He wanted to get better to be better. It doesn't make it less awkward, though. It was hard for me, a people pleaser, to not actively try and make him feel comfortable during the conversation. Even though his comment caused me harm, I was worried about him being comfortable. It is okay to let someone apologize and not absolve them of the harm they caused you. I had to be okay with not placating him or comforting him in that moment, and that was uncomfortable for me to do. That's the funny thing with power and privilege. He was more senior than I was. And even though he worked at a different company, we still worked together. I didn't want to mess that relationship up. But there is more power in words when they come from people more powerful than you. It is a lesson I think of often, as I am sometimes the most senior person in the room or in the meeting. Your words carry more power. Your actions, too. It wasn't his intent to cause me harm. Intent doesn't absolve the impact. Impact always wins over intent. 
Stating the desired intent doesn't lessen the burden on the person that was harmed. It can have the opposing effect. By stating intent, it diminishes the harm caused and centers the conversation back to the person that did the harm. Almost like saying, even though you have been harmed by my actions, I didn't mean to. So I'm a good person and you shouldn't feel the feelings that you feel. If you are in the position to be apologizing for your actions, don't talk. Instead, listen. Understand the harm caused. What I wish he had said. Laura, I've made you uncomfortable. My comment was inappropriate and I am so sorry. It will not happen again. I truly value our partnership. What can I do to make amends? If he had said that, I think it would have been enough. I don't think there would have been any other actions I needed from him. I would have felt seen and acknowledged. I learned a lot from the situation as a leader. It made me think about apologies that I've made in the past. I have used, that wasn't my intent, before in an apology. I'm unlearning and learning. I'll keep trying and we'll mess up in these conversations. I'm sure of it. But with each conversation, I can get better at advocating for myself and for others around me. It can be hard to prepare for conflict, but there are some common traps and red flags you can be on the lookout for. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.